the main point of this story is that while the guest editors appreciated our text, yes, a uh, a higher level editor, the chief editor, the chief come on, editor, let's not mean words, basically intervened to in a guest edited issue, in a guest edited issue, intervened to reject it. Yes. Now, by the way, we we did not send the paper of our own volition. We were invited to write it. Yeah. By the editors of the of the issue, yeah, uh, and then we were censored. Yeah, we feel we obviously have no proof, uh, but we feel this was just straightforward censorship. Just, yes, um, and reveals what we were discussing, what we began the episode with: that there is an increasing, increasingly striking crisis of the discipline, an increasing need to describe it honestly. And directly, and an inc- because of the precarity of the crisis, an increasing unwillingness to give space to that discussion. So it's not clear to us that the kind of research that we do will will be easy to publish or get out there. Yeah, um, through like institutional mechanisms. Certainly, like in, in prestige, peer reviewed. So what? We so we're going to be grifters. Exactly. What we feel is that we, there is increasing institutional censorship of the kind of uh, production we do. At the same time, there is an inversely proportional greater and greater interest that material. So we need to bypass the institutions that mediate access to the public. Therefore, we need to create an independent platform and invest more and more on it. Yeah. Therefore, we're going to become grifters. <laughs> <laughs> We, um, we we have a whole we have a whole theory of the grifter. Yes. Theory of the like the grifter versus hack. The grifter versus the hack. And who is the grifter? Who is the hack? Uh, we'll do, we'll do we'll have that discussion sometime. Probably at some point. Uh, but obviously, we use the term grifter uh, in a specific sense. Yes. Uh, basically, just meaning yeah, operating outside institutional support. support. Uh, and having to collect, gather direct access to audience, yeah, by saying things that do not garner institutional support, right? Anyway, right? Anyway, um, there can be bad grifters and good grifters. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a morally this, neutral category. Yeah, and it's just the, again, just the crisis of uh, the neoliberal consensus. Yeah, creates yeah opportunities for evil and opportunities for good. Yeah, exactly. And we're the good guys. So, um, but not the nice guys. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, so what? this is what we're going to do. Because I'm fucking poor, we are going to start a Patreon for this podcast. Yeah. Um, and for now, that Patreon is going to, like, basically help me pay my rent. Uh, we, but at the same time, we feel that we need to actually invest in it. And we want to invest in it. We want to create a what we hope would become an independent platform for producing our own material and putting it out there uh, with direct access to an, to, the, to the public, to an audience. That isn't as just like the students that we get 
assigned to us in an institute through an institutional mediation that at any point may decide to cut us loose. So part of that is we want to do a more regular schedule. Yeah. Uh, so this is part two. Part one was released on the first Tuesday of the month, first Tuesday of February. Which was the first. Which was the first of the month. Today is the eighth, the second Tuesday of second February. Second Tuesday. So uh, we're going to be releasing podcasts on that monthly basis, the first Tuesday of each month. And then if it's a two-parter, the second part will come out on the second week of the month, on the Tuesday. Yeah. The schedule is uh, explained in our Patreon page. Uh, yeah, so check us out there. There's a few tiers that you can choose which one is the most appropriate for you. Uh, we think they're pretty good. And, yeah, um, we, had, we, had fun, we had fun inventing them. Yeah. Um, how, how much of a bourgeois traitor you want to be, the more bourgeois traitor you are, we, the more we appreciate um, and reward you. Uh, and we, but we will reward you after the revolution. Everything, all content is free. We're not going to be like uh, doing paid content. Everything will be free. Uh, you will be contributing to like stimulators and supporters to invest more in this, um, in, in, in creating this independent platform. Yeah, the, the, the only difference, uh, uh, if you're a patron, we want to do something like a mailbag. Um, we want to get that, what do they call it? Community engagement? Community engagement. <laughs> Engagement equals algorithm promotion. Right, right. Uh, so if you're a patron of whatever level, engage. Uh, you can engage. <laughs> um, that's like the the, the positive. Um, that's like the grifting Dalek. Uh, yeah. Slogan. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um. If you're a patron, whatever level, uh, you can submit questions and comments and we'll talk about them in, uh, yeah, I guess it depends on how many, how many comments or questions we get. Yeah. And the nature of like, we, until we get the stuff, we don't know how to do it exactly in our brains. Ideally it would be, uh, an extra mailbag episode every once in a while when we have enough stuff, maybe every three months or whatever, something, I don't know. Um, we can't really be sure of the form we were going to do it in until we get the material to do it. Right. It may end up being seg seg segments on regular episodes. We, wh what we know is that we don't want it to interfere or replace the like rhythm yeah, of yeah, monthly yeah. content-focused episodes. But yeah. other than that, we 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 won't we'll we'll not at this point commit on the form. Right. But that'll those will be free too. We can commit on that. That's not going to be. Yeah. Send, sending sending comments or questions isn't free. Listening to other people's is yeah, yeah, yeah. We're also thinking of um, creating a, a a platform which can just be a blog or can be um, um, a, substack. a substack for putting essentially putting written versions, like a more academic, papery written versions of the. Uh, uh, materials and arguments we kind of more spontaneously develop in in the podcast. So in the podcast, we joke about the stuff. Um, but we can easily, like the, uh, the, the couple of episodes on the line can easily be turned into a kind of an extensive critical paper uh, exploring the, the, the exact same material in a more academic format. Um, Kind of the opposite thing that we've done today, which is do an oral version of an academic paper we wrote. 
Of yeah. course, that academic paper would probably immediately, we would immediately publish it uh, in this uh, platform for more academic written content. Yeah, like this text would be the first thing we'd probably put yeah, up. in for in sure. That. Yeah. Yeah. And then... And we are, I mean, like, we are academics. Yeah. I mean, I'm not and, technically and we, anymore one. Yeah. For the f past few months. But we are academics. Um, and like writing a more in-depth, researched, and like referenced version of the argument. Yeah. It's something we'd still like to do. Yeah. And not, not yeah. purely kind of riff on stuff only. Yeah. And it seems like there is no reason why we can't have both things at the same time. Yeah. Um, and because I have free time and no money, um, and I'm going to get the Patreon money because Will doesn't really need it right now. Um, but hopefully in the future we'll divide it, uh, and, be, and when, when it becomes enough for us to give up on formal academia, <laughs> which is not much because formal academia pays so shit that, uh, it, it's, it's, it's not that hard to get more money than we, we, we do get from it. Um, but yeah, anyway, the, the point being that now that I have free time, I can just actually put some, like spend instead of being depressed the whole day, actually spend the time producing these academic versions of uh, audio material we, we have already yeah. done in the past. And know that your work has somewhere to actually go. Exactly. Yeah. And that it can't be censored. <laughs> <laughs> until they kick us off. Uh, yeah, until, until, until next month. Until the when counter, Patreon, yeah. When the CIA tells Patreon to <laughs> shut down all left... Uh, yeah, all left discourse. Yeah. Okay, so back to our censored paper. Yeah. I guess we've, we've gone on a fair, fair time setting up the, like the historical genealogy right. of, of what we were working on, what we wrote in this thing. Uh, we'd like in the end here to to share some of the, the the funny material we have in it, because we began the text yes with kind of a survey of the discursive responses to the crisis. Yeah. How architects are to, like today like things today, are just published basically things just published in the last year or two. Yeah, how they are year year basically right last year yeah. when we wrote this they had just which been was at January, February, March, whatever, some, somewhere there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, these were things that had just come out. Yeah. So, like, what is the what is the really cutting edge, cutting edge contemporary thinking on the future of the architecture discipline, and how it will overcome these contradictions? Yeah. And so uh, we have two objects. Yeah, two things. One is the our ever so beloved. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the goose our, that lays the golden eggs. <laughs> our, architectural review. Yes, the architectural review, September issue of 2020. Yeah. Uh, which was composed of like a large number of letters to young architects. Um, a compilation of letters by experienced whatever um to basically the disenfranchised youth <laughs> yeah it's we we under, we think of it as a kind of a attempt to shore up morale yeah. amongst a kind of uh flailing flogging yeah not flogging flagging basically amongst the sort of depressed <laughs> and un undermotivated new generation yeah the other object we have is a book published uh, by Routledge in 2021 called Architects After Architecture, mm -hmm. which is a nice, straightforward, 
title for yes, what it, what it the is. what the problem is. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> How to be an architect when there's no profession for you, when yes. there's no way to be when a professional no ar- architect. Yeah. Yeah. So the, these these are two very funny, interesting objects. Uh, sometimes frustratingly so, sometimes hilariously so. The letters are fairly eclectic. Right. Uh, in the, the the overall gist of it is that it's all extremely irritating. But there is a certain difference between the letters are not all the same. Like I would say like roughly 50% of them are this kind of uh, patronizing, uh, established architect slash cultural entrepreneur uh, telling young architects that uh, like all of the good things about architecture according to their point of view of what architecture is and what are like the uh, <clears throat> personality characteristics that are best to engage with architecture giving kind of personal recommendations and blah 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 in the, in the, in the way that like Alberti was saying that uh, the architect needs to know Latin and be able to mingle and have conversations about fashion in court and shit like that it has the same kind of aura to it yeah like how how important it is to travel yeah make um, drawings you know make drawings I, I'll, I'll quote a bit from our from how we start our paper <laughs> it, it recalls very much a speech given at the AA at a graduation ceremony by thomas heatherwick when he said you know reflecting on how being an architect can be difficult uh he said, you know, this is advice to just graduating students. If you ever find that you don't enjoy practicing architecture anymore, just retire and play golf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. Now, I mean, at the AA, this might actually that work. might actually apply to some people. <laughs> uh, but it certainly It certainly applies to some people. It's certainly not universal no, Maybe not advice. for everybody, even at the AA. Pro- yeah. Not for everybody. No. But for some, for sure. <laughs> so yeah, the, the, the tone of the letters, of at least like half of the letters, is travel, always carry a notebook, mm. draw in said notebook, look mm-hmm. to your surroundings, take photos of your surroundings, put your photos in the notebook, don't grow up too fast, don't stay a child forever, stop and think, don't think, act. And this is an actual title of one of them. And if you can't get a job, maybe think about publishing your notebook. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of the tone of the whole thing. It's yeah. like, um, like these are, yeah, like some letters are self-centered elegies to their own authors, and they have the kind of tone of like the boomer telling the young how in their day they had to take a two-hour trip on a donkey to the village. But that was okay because it gave them the time to smell the flowers. Yeah. Um, and it was this poetry in their soul that lifted them all the way to partner in some international firm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, I mean, not all letters are this bad. Most of these letters are from white people. And most of them are from male white people. Um, other letters are not as bad. And some letters are definitely like you feel sympathetic towards them. Like they talk about real shit. They talk about issues of representation. They talk about issues of uh, bigotry and uh, discrimination in the profession, yep. uh, et cetera, and so on. And that's that's good. Um, they yeah. talk about, I, uh, I, some I, of them actually talk about like structural challenges to the discipline today. Yeah. There's sort of a split between letters recognizing a crisis yeah. uh, and letters just kind of giving... Yeah advice from a like boomer advice yeah. from 
having been born on third base, basically, exactly. historically speaking. Exactly. And how great it is to just stroll right down to home plate <laughs> from third base. Yeah, that's basically it. Yeah, but even the ones that are acknowledging the crisis and trying to tackle uh, the important dimensions of it, the framing of it as always ends up being like what you can do as an individual. Uh, it's about uh, how you can address these issues through your as an architect, right? And and, and I, I I I think that's like what lies at the core of the generational disconnect that is happening here, because increasingly what everyone's starting to understand is that you're not going to address any of these issues as an architect. These issues are macroeconomic, political, economic, social, political, blah blah blah. Yeah, historical. And this is about the like underlying fundamental and structural conditions within which the discipline and the profession function. Mm -hmm. And so you need to address them at their root level. Or all you can do is, at the very best, you're going to be, if you were lucky enough, you can manage to like do a little bit of patching here and there and don't make things worse, maybe. But in all likelihood, you're actually just going to make things worse. <laughs> Right. Even if you're, as you're trying to make them better as an architect, you, the, the, the fundamental concern is changing the conditions within which architecture is produced. And that requires political militancy, which is not being political as an architect doing political architecture. No, as, as we were saying before, like if the only clients you can get are private sector clients and the only game in town basically is real estate gentrification, gentrification and, yeah. then like no matter how clever you try to be, you will only succeed if you serve those interests. Yes. So whatever your political narrative is, your material reality serves those interests. And in fact, if you are very good at your political narrative, that may be even worse because you're providing a cover for the actual material uh, consequences of what's happening. Yeah, I want to share. I want to share an example of that. In, yeah, this in is a moment. this is much much clearer in the in the architects after architecture book. Yeah, I think in the in this book, uh, there's an editor's introduction, which is interesting because it just acknowledges the crisis situation and lays out their their general strategy, which is basically like for a long time, uh, a lot of graduates from architecture, a lot of architects, even who practice architecture, have gone on to work outside the discipline to become successful, you know, in other fields. And I mean, we've all probably heard of someone like Gordon Matta Clark, the artist who was trained as an architect. And it's sort of, you know, we try to take credit for him as an architect, his success as an artist, whatever. Uh, the editors are saying we need to apply this approach in a much broader way. So whenever people basically fail to find work as architects or are kind of turned out of the discipline and the profession in whatever way, Whatever they end up doing should be taken credit. We should take credit as a discipline and just say that that's architecture too. It's funny that we never do the opposite. Like Korob was not a trained architect. Right. So we like not if if we follow that logic, nothing that Korob UZA ever did was, was architecture. architecture. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I, it's totally fair. Yeah. If the celebrity chef who was trained as an architect, Claude Perrault also. In that same, yeah. yeah. Uh, we like he's cooking his architecture now. Yeah. Then the Mobile Villa aren't. Like, it's... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Athens Charter. Athens Charter, not architecture. Not architecture. 
most no, I think Shark Tank is pretty. It was collective endeavor. Was most collective. of them were were trained collective. architects. But I think if you surveyed Quora because today, he was an asshole, just yeah, published it as an individual. To, but yeah. But if you probably surveyed contemporary academic architectural thinkers, they'd agree that it's not architecture. Yeah, that's the, it's just planning. Or yeah, something. it's all right. Or it's, it's evil, totalitarian evil. policy yeah. of some kind. Anyway, in the, most of this book, it's it's very similar, actually, to Letters to a Young Architect. It's also a series, a compilation of texts. It's also a compilation text. of texts, and the texts generally take the form of like a little autobiography mm -hmm. or a little kind of advice. Which and half of these letters also have, particularly exactly. the, the white ones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they're, but these are directed, these are... In my day. These are success stories about transitioning out of architecture yeah. or about working on the, the border rather than these yeah. ones are, are asking and recommending to double down within the discipline. Yeah. So this book is a more conscious recognition of the yeah. crisis and a more adventurous tactical move it's to a, try to like... It's a better grift. It's, it's a, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's more interesting for sure. There's two texts which are put arranged back to back, which I think is a nice gesture by the editors right. that I'd like to talk about, although I think they should be in the reverse order. Okay. The first... We know one of the editors, you can tell her that. Yeah, yeah, one, one of the you editors should have, you should have friend and colleague. Yeah. The editors are Harriet Harris, Rory Hyde, and Ro Roberta Marcaccio. Yeah, who, Roberta is our friend and colleague. Yeah. Well, not my colleague anymore, but I would still say friend. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at the AA. So the first, the first text is called The Architect Developer by Roger Zogolovich. And this guy, I mean, I, my eyes looking down the table of contents immediately went to this one. Mm -hmm. The architect developer, mm -hmm. obviously, as the most straightforward. Yeah, uh, this guy was an AA student, and even while he was still an AA student, began working in kind of like retail design in uh, Mayfair, London, which is now obviously super posh, rich mm -hmm. area. I imagine it was quite posh and rich back then too. Yeah. And he tells a story about having to get permission for his project from uh, the city corporation, uh, which is the you know like financial oligarchic. It's a dystopian. Cabal. It's the dystopian corporate, uh, like cyberpunk corporate authority that runs uh, the center, like a large swath of central London. Yeah, it's like a weird outside of public. Um, that has its own private police and all that shit. Yeah, outside of public institutions. It's it's kind of it's kind of uh, cyberpunk. It's kind of steampunk too, because it's all, it's all like nineteenth century and and prior, and it's it has its whole like medievalism to its aesthetic. Yeah, but then it also has the. But then it has the the, the high tech uh, skyscrapers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he talks about going in to talk to uh, a surveyor in Guildhall, which is the medieval headquarters of this group mm -hmm. of this city corporation he goes in there in his basically in his like hippie outfit i don't think he gives a decade here we're in like i don't know the late 60s early 70s so we're right at this early transitional moment he's in guild hall in a vintage t-shirt uh, and jeans talking to a guy basically in like a tuxedo and 
he he basically talks about how he gets them on his side with the project, but then he makes a further recommendation, which is that they pedestrianize the street, and he makes a he says that if they do that, the property va- property values will go up. And at this point, he loses them. They basically don't trust this hippie to know anything about private property, know anything about real estate or property values. Little did they know. Little did they know. <laughs> and he basically goes on to say that this was the beginning of his career as an architect developer. And over the 70s and into the 80s, his whole architecture practice was basically finding abandoned industrial spaces, warehouse spaces, which he which he calls these wonderful old warehouses. <laughs> says the hippie. Says the hippie. As places for the for redevelopment and re replanning as studios, lofts. lofts, whatever. And he basically gets in on the ground floor of this kind of like proto redevelopment gentrification dynamic. And he he's completely uh, oblivious. He's completely oblivious to the political critique. He's of like this he's kind of literally practice. he's literally describing what everyone today critiques and yeah. saying, "I came up with it. Exactly. That was exactly. my genius, and that's how you leave you make your way out of architecture." Yeah, and he he talks about how he would just like comb through estate catalogs to find potential property. Basically, he's he's looking for uh, uh, instances of a rent gap, right between like a lower existing rent and a potential future rent that right. could be higher. Yeah, and then he finds these you know lovely old warehouses. He makes a quick design, and then tries to sell it to the person whoever it is that owns the warehouse, mm-hmm. like unsolicited almost, mm-hmm. and made an entire career with a few uh, colleagues: Nick Campbell, Rex Wilkinson, Piers Gow. Uh, just doing this for decades. All hippies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you just picture they're like archigram characters, right? Yeah, 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 obviously. Obviously. He even talks about how... When less less wealthy from the get-go probably because archigram doesn't need to sell anything to anybody. Yeah, that's true. That's true. He even talks literally about how in 1987, Margaret Thatcher revised planning use orders that facilitated this kind of gentrification re reprogramming and that this was a huge boon to them who were quote struggling along i think with their with their with right. their de- private design practice so this, 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 this is like this is pure evil yeah and it's Strug- and it's just like boasting this, he about says, it quote this was a godsend for those of us struggling away trying to defend or create studio use as part of the light industrial use Use category, yeah. So this is a completely oblivious, tone-deaf uh, narrative of success. Success in the rise and through the rise of neoliberalism. By being in the vanguard of it. By being in the vanguard of it as a, as a, as a hippie who knew more about the value of culture. Who could, yeah, who could gauge... How culture, uh, how the new cultural trends would determine in a in an unexpected way for the economic agents of the time where surplus value could be got from real estate. Yeah, and he's like an instance of the Archigram project, the instant city. He's culture bombing. Yeah, 
these uh, like old timey, uh, out of touch, yeah. uh, city corporation characters, yeah. and actually teaching them something about value yeah. and about private property. Yeah. And I think another thing that's interesting about this is that he talks about how, like, when he discusses his practice, he puts it in re- in really starkly commodified terms and really material terms. Like, he only talks to clients and justifies his projects in terms of the profit margin that they generate. He doesn't make an architectural argument about his projects. He sells them on their value to investors, on their value to the to the property owner. He's selling the rent gap, basically. He's just selling gentrification. He's not he, with the client. He doesn't make any cultural argument. Right. And he he talks about how he would give a talk. To, he gave a talk to Reba that was purely going through these kinds of arguments. Like this is how you talk to clients. Just tell them they will make money from you, and that's it. Right. Yeah. So it's completely. I mean, it's it's really kind of refreshingly right, free of right, ideology. Right, you right. know. Like it's totally clueless politically, but that means you it's honest, right? Yeah, exactly. So this, I would like to juxtapose that text, which I think is very educational, if historical, it doesn't necessarily apply to the present, as we've discussed. Yes, yeah. these, these yeah. All, all that money's been made already doing that. Yeah. Yeah, now bankers get money from... From, uh, from the state. Like the state just yeah. prints money and gives it to them. Uh, it's through financial bailouts. Uh, they, they don't need to build lofts anymore. Yeah. The other text, which <coughs> appears directly before it, but I think should come after to, to make this juxtaposition mm-hmm. more, more obvious, is a text called The Self as a Design Subject by Jack Our Self. <laughs> Jack Self. Jack Self. The Self as a Design Subject. <laughs> And it's it's literally it is like the joke is 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 literal. It's a it's an autobiography about how he created his own persona as a kind of self actualization and will to power. Yeah, it's 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 I have to. It's a frightening read. It's a very frightening read. I mean, this this has vibes of like American Psycho. I don't know exactly. He has vibes of American Psycho. <laughs> It has this kind of like, here's, here's a little passage. I spent a lot of time, as a teenager, I was reclusive and distant. I spent a lot of time watching foreign films and reading alone. Science fiction, but mostly classical works. My preference was for Greek philosophers and Roman poets. I was driven by an almost Victorian compulsion to progress, to progress and self-improvement. In another age, this could easily have become zealous faith. However, after a brief attempt to find God, I knew by 17 that I would be forever godless. <laughs> it goes on to talk about how he would set like 10-year plans for himself, how he, he thinks of Jack's self as a kind of fictional construct. Quote, unquote, quote, I understand Jack's self as a kind of fictional construct a persona that can be deployed in service of my agenda. <laughs> now, who the my is in this is like uh, what the agenda is. Who's the subject of Who's the, the agenda? Who's the subject of the agenda? Of, of which, which Jack Self is a tool is for. A, is a tool, yeah. Uh, that's that's the, creepy, the creepy vibe you get in this. But he goes through talking about how he he realized the importance of discourse and how, how important 
rhetoric and, and the power of speech could be. He reflects on speech as a as a basically as a power to impose your will and self-actualize, even outside of like uh, the merits of what your right. your your content is or your like what power you really have access to. He's making no connection between like getting your way, yeah, and like what is right or what is just or even what is true. Yeah. Like it's this is why it's, it really sort of suggests this kind of Nietzschean will to power, soft, like pure sophistry approach. Yeah. But at the same time, it's full of political or like ethical uh, reflections. How many times does he quote Marx while... I don't think there are any saying, Marx quotes in, oh, in his camp. <laughs> There's one particular quote I wanted to read. Jack Self is very good at gratuitously quoting Marx. I became a feminist and a socialist. Then, just as quickly, backed away from all labels. I have a deep dislike of groups. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he, he talks about uh, like his interest in housing and how important it was to, to him to, to produce an actual project. Of housing is for groups. He should hate housing. He should do houses for individuals. Well, he, he, he says that he, like, he, he maintains that there's some sort of moral political direction to, to this like, subject-free agenda. But he has a deep dislike for groups. I know. I mean, <laughs> he has a deep dislike of committing to a political program, obviously. But the, the point is, the difference between Jack Self and the other guy, Roger, is an awareness of the necessity of discourse, the role of rhetoric, and the use, misuse, the use of political ideology as a, I don't, I don't know if smokescreen is the right this, this word. Is, this is a historical distinction. This is an historical distinction, a generational distinction. Jack, Jack Self is, is our age. Basically. The other guy did not need, did not need culture. It would get in the way. Exactly. He didn't didn't need politics either. Yeah. He didn't have to say anything about housing. Yes. Jack Self, the only way to sell the exact same thing the other guy was selling today is to pretend that's not what it is. And the best you the better you are at pretending, at producing smoke screens, the better you can make make the sale. Yeah. In fact, and in fact with the 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 the, the crisis of uh, actual the actual construction sector, we, we, have, we have had like a two-stage shift. These, the guy in the 60s, no culture, no politics, no rhetoric, no discourse, just, just profit. Just sell it no. on profit. Yes. Because there is profit. Yes. That's it. Then everyone starts realizing what's happening. It starts being unpopular. You need to create a smokescreen for what you're doing. And that is the critical project, 70s onwards. And it becomes worse and worse. Now, with the collapse of the real estate private market, architects can no longer sell the lofts. So they, now they sell just the smoke screen. Would you like this extra tangy smoke I've got here? Yeah. And they're just competing for the smoke quality. Well, and Self says that his, his firm, Real, sustains itself on consulting work. Yeah. Whatever, you just sell smoke, whatever that literally. Means. Yeah. And his housing project, 
I mean, I think we're going to talk about this again at some other point in more detail, but right. the main housing project. We, we could do an entire episode just on Jack's. Just on these projects, yeah. <laughs> the main project, the Ingot, is a financial, a fictitious financial mechanism for making affordable housing palatable to financial speculation. Yes. But what he's inventing, and he thinks he's inventing this, and you hear him describe the financial mechanism that he's inventing, and he's just describing a hedge fund. Right. He's just inventing the hedge fund as an architectural project. The hedge fund had been around for decades, but he's inventing it now as a way to make social housing. <laughs> yeah, and it supposedly would make it affordable somehow and i mean it's all made up it's, it's all of these sentences art. are non sequiturs it's at the end of the day it's 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 a performance it's art yeah yeah so yeah i think i mean that's i, I think these two which are right next to each other are just a nice juxtaposition right of how architecture got through its previous crisis yeah. and how it might try to do it today but how and as self himself says like the ingot was never realized his attempts to actually find private developers to like private, like actual capital to invest in these housing schemes has been unsuccessful. And now he's going to try to create his own development firm or yeah. whatever, yeah. building yeah. firm. We'll see what that means. But it's it's a really nice historical I'm going to guess it's not going to be made of gold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just going through the book and I saw these two essays next to each other. I was like, this is just the same guy born into different years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a text by professional hack and fake leftist Jeremy Till. <laughs> <laughs> it's the very first text of the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's kind of hilarious the way in which he frames it. Like the, the whole thing is about uh, like architects after architecture uh, because uh, the climate crisis. Mm. So you can already see like, because actually building something is, bad. is bad because uh, unsustainability or whatever. Right. Uh, so it's like, it's already kind of fetishizing the, that it's actually good that we're all out of our professional jobs. Uh, and this kind of just piles on as the text goes. But like, I just, I just want to emphasize uh, how these people are completely incapable of producing anything resembling a coherent position in the space of two pages. Okay. Uh, this is uh, in the second page of the text, half, uh, halfway through the second page of the text. I'm quoting, these are but three small examples of the conflicted nature of architecture's engagement with the climate emergency. Hmm. First, the fragility of design sticking tape over much larger societal cracks. Okay. Pretty good, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. Second, the duplicity of phony words and declarations which deny the reality of the environmental crisis. Oh, yeah, hell yeah. Third, Preach. the retreat from engaging with external issues to the perceived safety of internalized values. Oh, again. It, it, he sounds like us. Killing it. He's killing it. Yeah. I'm, uh, this is great. I, I love this Jeremy Till guy. He must be a real leftist. <laughs> um, two pages later. Yeah. <laughs> the climate emergency is not a problem that can be solved. It is a predicament that we have to make best sense of. 
In this light, buildings are not solutions, but the new architecture is a means of making spatial sense of the new societal conditions that will emerge. To live in the Anthropocene, the geological era in which the effects of the emergency are unfolding, needs a shift in sensibility mm. from humans as distanced, distanced beings in the pursuit of freedom and progress to humans mm -hmm. embedded in and responsible for a non-human world of interconnected systems. Okay. This responsibility turns the project of architecture after architecture into a profoundly ethical one. What does this mumbo jumbo mean? I'm not sure. <laughs> and then he takes a, a fairly hard turn and just makes an explicit anti-science statement. Okay. Creative practice is exemplary in understanding connections operating iteratively and laterally where the scientific method, for example, is more linear and deductive. Okay. So, and he's arguing for creative practice. Right, right. To face the climate crisis. Right. And in that, he feels the need to denounce, or at least put it in opposition to, science. Science, yeah. Right. Like, the environmental crisis obviously requires large-scale transformation of the political economic uh, structures of society that require a kind of a revolutionary transformation, period. Yeah. It requires a like immediate, large-scale, massive-scale, as never seen before in the history of humanity, sort of partial militarization of the economy in a large-scale planning, uh, yeah. a large-scale plan to hard transition yeah. from certain modes of production to other modes of production. It's very straightforward. It's nothing to do with creative think practice. Well, it's like, and, and, his, and in his previous, <clears throat> his previous uh, three points, the point was to deal with external, the reality of external circumstances. And then, and then it becomes practice. the importance is iterative exploration. Yes. Against deductive scientific method. Yes. I mean, I've, this is a this is a contradiction, obviously, in, in discourse around climate change. So on the one hand, you have science scientists saying climate change is real, and then you have the anti-science reactionary position of the fossil fuel industry, who have done their own research and know that climate change is real, but are just just confusing the matter and denying it using various tricks, basically. Yeah. And then you've got the like philosophical approach to the whole problem, which is basically to think. Science is what got us into this predicament. We need to like move laterally into the irrational, yeah, and that somehow will get us out of that. Just start praying and, for salvation. And all fossil fuel industry investors are clapping their hands yes. at that with with great enthusiasm. They like all of the uh, fossil fuel mono monopolies have been investing billions upon billions of dollars in anti-science propaganda for decades, yeah. and now all the leftists, hashtag quote, leftists, quote unquote, quote unquote leftists are saying science is bad. Wow, how much we're going to save in propaganda. <laughs> so after denouncing duplicity of phony words, retreat from engaging with external issues to the perceived safety of internalized values, and even like at the first one, denouncing design. Yeah. Final we're paragraph. Okay, here we go. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, is the central role of design <laughs> <laughs> and the new architecture to envision new futures, not in an under, ungrounded or merely speculative manner, but in a way that materializes and spatializes revised social conditions and relationships. Eh. 
the creative act here is a form of storytelling oh. in which alternative narratives might be imagined. Climate change doesn't give a climate fuck about your fucking... It's not a narrative. Climate change is real. It's not a fucking narrative. <laughs> the climate emergency demands that we discover new ways of living, retreat, retreat, into, retreat the, into, this. into the internalized the safety of internalized values. The climate emergency demands that we discover new ways of living. Designers and the new architects after architects can be the agents of envisioning them, always in partnership with others. Yeah, but who are those others? Who has the money? Whoever you, you can hack your way to yeah, whoever you get can, funding yeah. you. Oh, and importantly, the entire text moves from practice is bad to yeah. the hope is in the students, my students, academic work. The autonomy of exploratory academia. Right, right. Of the laboratorial right. experimentation that academia allows for. That's where we're going to solve climate change. Yeah. It takes climate change and weaponizes it yeah. to sell academia as a product. Right. As the it's central paradigmatic example paradigmatic. of what we're talking about. Yeah. I love the the emphasis on the iterativity of it that you have these academic incubators. Just give them time. You know, They'll bullshit their way towards something eventually. Like we've we've got nothing but time. Let the iterative practice yeah. take its take its course. It's not like there's not like loads of people who are literally telling you what needs to happen next year and the year after that and the year after that. Yeah. And what is necessary to make No, we need the central role of creativity. Design. Please go check out patreon.com slash streetsweeperpod. Thanks.